such a, a beautiful hymn that God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. You know, I had studied the doctrine of propitiation in, in Bible college and then once again in, in a seminary. I actually wrote a paper on propitiation, but it never had quite the power until I learned that hymn and sang that line. Uh, that's just what good, good music does for you. And I'm so thankful um, that we have such a great God-honoring, Christ-centered worship here. Amen? Amen. So thank you, uh, Logan. Thank you, choir. Thank you for uh, musicians and everyone who took part. We're going to look in Matthew chapter 13 once again this morning. Matthew 13. If you want to follow along. In the Bible in the pew in front of you, you can find that on page 974, Matthew chapter 13, or 974 in the Bible in the pew in front of you. And uh, this is a little bit of a lengthy text, and so I will simply read this morning uh, and invite you just to follow along in your own copy of the Word. Beginning in verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and he bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it, in, drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood these things? And the disciples said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. This is the word of the Lord. May he increase our understanding and our will to follow it this morning. When I was... Uh, when I was in college my first year, um, my stepdad, uh, the Charles Scott, the one that passed away a few years ago, um, he used to go to flea markets in Pine Bluff. And there used to be one uh, right there on Highway 270. You remember where it is? There's like hotels and stuff now. So uh, there used to be one there and uh, he would go and, and these places you would go and you would just find all this junk, you know, and stuff like that. And, and so he woke up one morning and uh, he had about $50 in his pocket, kind of burning a hole in his pocket. So, so uh, he got up one Sunday morning and he, uh, went over to the, he went over to the flea market and they had this little kind of makeshift little cart thing and he's just kind of pushing it around, uh, looking at all the different things. He's picked up a little trinket here, a little, little thing there. And he comes across this clock and this clock is like in this little cabinet thing. It's, it's kind of weird, kind of a weird design. And, uh, and they wanted $35 uh, or $40, something like that, for this clock, which was, which was really overpriced, especially at a flea market. And 
he didn't really think anything of it. And, um, and so he's just kind of kind of looking around something else. But then he notices in the corner, there's a, there's a little corner, green corner of a piece of paper sticking out. And he saw that and he thought, huh, that could be something or that could be nothing. And so he decided to take the risk. He puts the clock into his little cart thing, whatever it was, and he, uh, and he takes back all the other stuff he had picked up. He puts it all back. And then he goes uh, to this uh, vendor and he pays for the clock. He paid about $40 for the clock. And so he, uh, so he gets in his car and he kind of tugs on that little corner and he pulls out a $20 bill. And he thought, oh, well, you know, you win some, you lose some, no big deal. So he gets home and he lugs this thing inside and he puts it on his kitchen table. Doesn't even think about it for a couple of days. But then when he's putting it away, he, uh, he kind of opens one of the drawers and there's another little roll of bills there. And this one is 50s and 100s. And so he puts that aside and then he sees another one stuffed behind that. So he takes it out, takes out another one, takes out another one. By the time he was done, he found $10,000 stuffed in that clock. Now, let me ask you a question. Was that a good trade? Yeah, I'd say that's a good trade. I would most certainly say that that was a good trade. And what we need to ask this morning is that are we willing to make a better exchange? Are we willing to make a better trade for all the things that we have? We're coming to the end of this section of Matthew. You notice in uh, verse 53, right after our text, it says, when Jesus had finished these parables, that is a major dividing line in the gospel of Matthew. So, uh, so we're coming to the end of this major division. We're coming to the end of the parables. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to conclude this section, this series of parables with kind of four ending parables that, that are really forming a conclusion to everything that we've talked about in, ver, in, chapters, uh, in chapters 11 through 13. And we've all been talking about, all of this has centered around this idea of the conviction of the disciple. What do we believe? What do we need to believe? How do we respond? And what is the truths of the kingdom that we need to take with us? And now we are coming to that conclusion. We have all this conviction built up. We have all of these truths, and now the question is, is what do we do with it? What do we do with it? And then that is really the question of the ages. What are you going to do with the message of Jesus Christ? Are you willing to make a better trade? Are you willing to make a better bargain? And so what we're going to see this morning, the, the whole point, these four parables kind of come together with this mentality that we must treasure the kingdom of heaven above everything else in our lives. The kingdom must come first. If it doesn't, we will run into trouble every time. And so, in fact, if you want to know where the kingdom is not first in your life, follow the chaos. That's where you will find where the kingdom is not first. And so the question is then, how do we treasure the kingdom? What does that look like? And what we're going to see this morning is three responses that we have to the kingdom. Three responses that will indicate how we treasure that kingdom in our lives. We must value the kingdom 
We must wait for the kingdom and we must, <laughs> wait, I got it here. We must proclaim the kingdom. I know I'm inspiring you guys with confidence. And so uh, we must value the kingdom, we must wait for the kingdom, and we must proclaim the kingdom. And so this first parable that he gives, actually there's, there's two parables that he gives at first, and they're, they're kind of grouped together and they're kind of saying the same thing. So we're gonna consider them together, beginning in verse 44 through 46, we see that first of all, if we're gonna treasure the kingdom, then we must value the kingdom and essentially we must value it before everything else. Look what he says. The kingdom of heaven, he compares it to a treasure that is found hidden in the field. It is actually very common at this time to find treasure and valuables buried in different places in Israel. In fact, that's actually still pretty common today. And so, um, because think about, it, think about it, they didn't have banks back then, they didn't really have anything like that, so if you wanted to save for the future, you had to put it in a safe place. And so oftentimes it would be buried, and sometimes you just forget where it is. And so some people have kind of accused Jesus here of, of kind of giving something unethical, or, or something like that. In fact, some people can even accuse my stepdad of being unethical. He should have taken it back. He bought the clock. <laughs> he bought the clock, right? If he had taken the money out and put it back there, he would have stolen it, but he bought the clock. So, and in the same way, I believe there's a parable about that. <laughs> so, and we're looking at it. So there's, um, uh, the question is, is that, is this legal? And what we do know is that Jewish law, if you are the worker in a field and you come across the treasure, if you're working in that field, then that treasure belongs to the owner. But there's no indication that this guy's a worker. And there's no indication that the owner knows anything about this. In fact, if he did, he would have gone and gotten it before he sold it, right? And so this belonged to something, someone else, and this is a long lost treasure that this guy happened to find. And in his joy, in fact, the way Matthew words this is really interesting because in, your, in some of your Bibles, it goes from past tense to present tense, and that's on purpose because what he's doing is he's slowing it down and giving you a step-by-step. -step. He's so overjoyous that he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys the field. And so it's focusing in on this. The, he goes and really emphasizes this part because the combined value of everything that this man had accumulated, saved, and accomplished, the combined value of all of that could not compare to the surpassing value of the treasure that he found. And so the kingdom is like that treasure. The surpassing value of the kingdom is, is far, far surpassing than all of the riches, all of the things that we have amassed and accomplished over the years, over our entire lives. It's worth more than it all. So the first time the kingdom is compared to a treasure, but now in the second time in verses 45 and 46, it's compared to a person. Compared to a person. He says, Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and he bought it. This time, Matthew is emphasizing the pearl. He's not emphasizing the selling. This pearl of great value, one of the things you need to know about this is that in the ancient world, pearls were considered priceless. 
In fact, there are some Indian cultures of this time, Oriental cultures, that, that a pearl was valued at three times more than pure gold. And so this was a precious thing in and of itself, but he found a pearl of great value, great value, priceless pearl. There's one other time that, that this term appears in the Gospels, and it is when it is when the woman, I believe it's uh, maybe Mary, I can't remember, but she pours the expensive oil on Jesus's feet. That word expensive is the same term that we see here. You remember Judas says, what are you doing? You could have sold this for 300 denarii. Now, keep in mind, Judas may have been exaggerating, but it just goes to show of how much worth this is, how much value this is. And so this merchant is one that travels by ship. In other words, he goes to country after country. He goes all over this area, all over the Mediterranean, looking for valuables. He's, his livelihood is done by this. And when he finds this great and priceless pearl, he rejoices. He sells everything that he has in order that he might possess this great, valuable pearl so that he could obtain it. Beloved, both of these parables, the point of both of them is the surpassing worth of the kingdom of God. The surpassing value of the kingdom of heaven. Look, and, and this is all over the scriptures. We see this in places. Look at Proverbs 23, verse 23, for example. You see that the, uh, the, the teacher says, by truth, and do not sell it. Buy wisdom, instruction, and understanding. Buy the truth, sacrifice that you may obtain truth, that you may obtain, put personal investment into obtaining truth, wisdom, and instruction. And then don't sell it. Keep it. Obtain it. Be willing to give of yourselves to find and possess the truth. Perhaps there's no better example of this than Paul. Philippians chapter three. In fact, if you want to turn there, Philippians three. Chapter three, beginning in verse seven, I believe. Won't read the whole text, but he says here, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted lost. Just as he goes through this litany of, of all of these um, all of these advantages he had as a Jew. Think about all the advantages you have as an American citizen. That we are free, we are, we, we have, uh, we are democracy, we're a republic. We, we, all of the advantages and all of the joys of what it is to be an American citizen. He, on the other hand, is saying it's the same to him. All of these things, a Benjamite circumcised on the eighth day, uh, a Pharisee of Pharisees. In other words, I was the Hebrew of Hebrews. I was the best American citizen as you can imagine is what he's essentially saying. And yet he follows that up in verse seven. Whatever things were gained to me, I count as loss, as loss. More than that, all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Christ is worth all the more. Everything that we can find pride 
and joy in. He counts them all as rubbish in order that he might gain Christ. Christ is the treasure. Christ is our double portion. Christ is our anchor. He is our riches. He is our wisdom. He is our righteousness. He is our strength. Christ is all in all. And it is the gospel that is precious. It is the gospel, the kingdom that is precious. When two parables like this are put together, one of the things that kind of helps you figure out what Jesus is doing is you kind of ask yourself, what are the differences? What, are, what, what do you find here, this difference? And in the first parable, the man just happens upon the treasure. He's not really looking for it. In the second parable, the man is seeking all over, traveling at great distances to find treasures when he finds this one. Beloved, maybe there are some of you this morning who just happened in here. No real forethought, no real plan. Maybe you came in because it is your duty. It's because you've what you've always done on Sunday, every Sunday of your life, since you sat on your mom's and daddy's knee. You have been here and you give no forethought to it whatsoever. You are just here and that is what you do on Sunday. Some of you others, you have been searching for your whole life. You have amassed treasures. You've got Christian morals. You've got the Christian culture. You've got the cliches. You've got all of that, but you don't have Christ. You have been amassing pearls, but you have not yet found the pearl of great price. You have not yet found the priceless pearl, the greatest pearl. You've been seeking and obtaining treasures your whole life, but they are little trinkets of brass and copper. Beloved, would you give up $50 to obtain $10,000? I dare say there may be some of you who need to there may be some of you who need to trade your trinkets and brass of moralism and legalism and you need to trade it for the pearl of great price. You've amassed all of these things but you have not obtained the gospel. Look, beloved, please obtain it today. Find the pearl of great price today before you leave here. You have no idea what's gonna happen when you walk out those doors, do not stake your future on trinkets of brass and copper. Seek the pearl of Christ. Our first response is valuation. We look at the kingdom and we, have, and we value it. We, we, we understand that the valuation of this kingdom is more. But our second response is expectation. Our second response is expectation. Look what he says in verse 47. The kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. We saw that we must value the kingdom, but we must also wait for the kingdom. That is the second response that shows that we treasure the kingdom above all, that we wait for it. Good things come to those who wait, amen? Of course they do. Are you willing to put off Instant gratification in order to obtain the greatest joy of all. 
That's the idea here. He gives a picture of a dragnet. And, and uh, you know, uh, even today, professional fishing, you know, when you think of fishing in the, Old Test- in the New Testament, a lot of times you think of recreational fishing, right? And, and you even go to evangelism conferences and they'll talk about how, you know, if you wanna catch fish for the Lord, you gotta use the right bait and, and, and all of this stuff and, and all of that. Beloved, that is a complete misunderstanding of what it means to be fishers of men. Because, the, because Jesus is talking to professional fishermen and they, talk, they fish with nets. And so we're talking about net fishing here. And we're talking about this dragnet that he says that, that when it is cast over the side of the ship or the boat and it just drags along and it catches fish of all different kinds. And he says that he's gathering fish and when it's filled, they draw it up to the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers and the bad they threw away. And Christ says, this is the way that it will be at the end. You know, unlike a lot of the other parables, he actually, he actually stops in the middle of the parable and begins to make a, a very clear comparison to what he's talking about. You know, the disciples don't have to come back to him and ask him, what does this mean or or any of that? At this point, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like this dragnet. And now I'm telling you that at the end of the age, this is what it's going to look like. The very first time in this entire chapter, he has interrupted himself to give the interpretation. So that tells me that this is somewhat important, that this is probably leading up to the big conclusion of the whole chapter that this is something that he really wants us to understand. And he says, at the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from among the righteous. Jesus had already taught this in verses 41 and 42. If you look back, he says, the son of man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks, those who commit lawlessness and throw them into the fiery furnace, furnace of fire, in that place, it will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He, he uses that exact same terminology again here. But I want you to notice there is a slight distinction here. And that he says the angels will come forth and they will separate out. They will, they will take out. They will separate the wicked from the righteous and they will throw them into the furnace of fire. Here they will be separated out from the righteous and they will be cast into what the revelation calls the lake of fire. It's all different kinds of imagery. We don't don't really understand it, but what we do know is that it will be a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth and it is a place you don't want to go. You think Arkansas is hot. Arkansas is hot. Every year around June, I start to think, why did I come back here? It's, it's hot. And I got a lot more insulation than you guys do. And so I just, I, I just suffer, man. I, it's hot. I didn't believe in purgatory until I moved here. <laughs> Being purged for something, I, wish, I really wish someone would tell me what it is. Where was I? So... Um, <laughs> Oh, I know I'm in Arkansas. Aren't you glad for the cooler weather this morning? Yeah, now I'm really lost. All right, (laughs) the lake of fire. 
what the, what the revelation calls. And listen, we don't understand exactly what it's gonna be like, but what we do know is this, that the imagery of weeping and gnashing of teeth speaks of total agony, total misery, always dying, never dead, always Jonathan Edwards says that oftentimes people think of hell as the place of separation from God, but no, God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. There is nowhere that he cannot be. And those who are suffering in hell will stare at the face of God in his pure, unadulterated wrath for all eternity. They will look upon the one that whom they have rejected and they will see him and remember all the times that they attended church but they heard the gospel and they were satisfied with their little trinkets of brass and copper and never sought the real treasure. They traded in $10,000 for 50 bucks. They can barely even buy you McDonald's nowadays. Why would you do that? Why would you make a trade like that? It's so foolish. It's so foolish. You know, some people misunderstand this parable. They, they see the words good and bad and they put some kind of legalistic and moralistic spin on it. He separates the good boys from the bad boys and the good girls from the bad girls, you know, and all of that. But let me ask you a question. Who were the fishermen? Probably. Who, who does Jesus have in mind? Where are we? We're in Israel, right? So what nationality are the fishermen? They're Jews, right? We're talking about Jewish fishermen. And in the Jewish diet and in the Jewish law, what determines whether a fish is bad or good? It's not, it's not their size. It's not their weight. What is it? Well, it's scales, but what determines that? The law. In other words, if they are clean or unclean, right? And so what's determining as this dragnet is dragging all kinds of fish in and they sit down, they're separating it. They're not separating out the, the big from the small or the tasty from the untasty. They're separating out the clean from the unclean. And you see, in that net, the law has already declared what fish are clean and what fish are unclean. All that's happening at the end is the separation. The cleanness and the uncleanness are already, are already declared. And beloved, that is a key truth of Christian theology. That is a key truth of Christian life that right now we are in the dragnet. We grow up around unbelievers. We grow up around, we do business with unbelievers. And yet, we are declared clean by the justification of our Lord. Look at Paul's argument in Romans 3, 31. Paul says that do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. 
We are declared to be righteous. Look what he goes on to fill that in in chapter eight in verses three and four. He says, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of human flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Why? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Beloved, if you are here, you may be in the net, but if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord, you are declared righteous. You are justified. And the only determination at the end of the day is the actual separation. You see, this is a, another key truth Salvation is present now, but it will be completed in the future. And you, you need to understand that. If you don't understand that, you will be a very frustrated Christian. Very frustrated Christian. The kingdom is already, but it is not yet. And that is why, beloved, there will never be a perfect church. There will never be a perfect marriage. There will never be a perfect wife, except mine. There will never be a perfect job. There will never be a perfect, and men, you better be saying that too, I understand. But I didn't hear a lot of amens there, and I probably should have. Although if you amen, it might have been for Roxanne, so I get it, never mind. So you still should have. But anyway, there will never be perfection this side of heaven. And yes, you are declared righteous, but you still struggle with sin. Yes, you are declared righteous. You are washed white as snow. But until the fulfillment of the kingdom comes, there will always be those who are declared clean among those who are declared unclean. Those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. Those who are washed white as snow and those who are trying to cover their scarlet with filthy rags. We will be living side by side. And the question we need to ask this morning is not how to point them out or how to tell. The question to ask this morning is which one are you? Are you righteous? Are you clean? Are you in Christ? Are you washed white as snow? Or are you in Adam? Are you the unclean? Are you the one who is still trying to cover your scarlet with filthy rags, thinking that that is a gift that will be acceptable to God and earn your way into heaven? You must be washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why I love that line. For God the just is satisfied to look on Christ and pardon me. Does Christ, does God the Father see you through the righteousness of Jesus Christ applied to your account? Well, I'm better than so-and-so. So what? I'm better than you, Randy. Yeah, you are. I don't deny that for a second. What's that got to do with the price of beans in China? Absolutely Nothing. Are you right in the sight of God? That's all that matters. That's the question. Which one are you? That's, that's our expectation. We are waiting for the fulfillment of the kingdom, that final culmination, that final justification 
that those who have been washed in the lamb will be gathered together and carry on into the kingdom. Will you be there? I fear that even now, even after all these years, there are still some of you who will not be there on that day. I fear that there are still some who have, are still trading in white garments for filthy rags. Which one are you? Don't let this day go by without finding the true treasure. And so we must value the kingdom. We must, what I say? Wait for the kingdom. And finally, we must proclaim the kingdom. We must proclaim it. We can't keep it to ourselves. We cannot keep it to ourselves. Look what he says in verse 51. Our third response, responsibility. Valuation, expectation, responsibility. What, look at his response here. He says to his disciples, have you understood these things? And the disciples say, yes. They've had to ask a few times. They've listened intently. They're understanding from Christ that he is revealing the secrets of heaven, the eternal plan of God to sum up all things in Jesus Christ. Yes, we understand these things. We get it. We know what you're saying. Now what? Now what? And herein comes the fourth parable. His final word picture that ends this entire section of Matthew. He says, therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out his treasure, things new and old. He compares them to scribes. If you understand these things, you're like a scribe. Who were the scribes? They were, they were experts of the law, right? They were those who understood the word and they taught it. Jesus calls them scribes because now every scribe, you are a scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven. That word trained is actually the word discipled. That's why some of your translations say who have become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven or who have been trained to the kingdom of heaven. The, the process of training disciples, teaching them to obey every word that is proceeded from the mouth of God. Now they are disciples for the kingdom. And the disciples of the kingdom are like a household owner who brings out of his treasure things both new and old. What is he talking about there? What in the world has that got to do with all of this? Well, look at what Jesus taught the disciples in various places. In Luke chapter 24, for example. He says, and the two men who are walking to Emmaus, what does he say in verse 27? He says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He didn't, he didn't leave it to do that just for his disciples. He also said it to the enemies of Christ. Look in John chapter five, he tells the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but it is they who bear witness to me, to Christ. 
We proclaim the message of Scripture, both the Old Testament, which they had, which is old, and the New Testament, which was coming, which will be new. All of it together teaches one message, the redemption of Jesus Christ. It all comes together in him. We proclaim the message of Scripture, whether from the Old Testament or the New. It all points to Christ. No exceptions. We cannot be satisfied with little moralistic, uh, treating the stories of Scripture like little moralistic folk tales. We can't, we can't be satisfied with that. We have to go deeper and show how does this story, how does this narrative point us to Christ? How does it prepare us for Christ? How does it reflect on Christ? How does it reveal our need for Christ? How does it typify Christ? How does it point to Christ? How does it predict Christ? Whatever it is, it is all about Christ. It is all about Jesus. It cannot be anything else. It culminates in Christ. It is Christ whom we proclaim. He is the kingdom. He is the glory. He is our wisdom. He is our righteousness. He is the vine. He is the lily of the valley. He is the pearl of great price. This is the message we proclaim. Nothing else will save a soul more precious than pearls, more costly than diamonds. That we would spend, oh church, that we would spend and be spent for the, for the advancement of the gospel. That we would give our lives to that mission. That everything we do would be pointed and for the gospel of Christ. That's what we are proclaiming. We must value it. We must wait for it, and we must proclaim it. And so, beloved, this morning, I just want to leave you as we prepare for the ordinance, the sacrament this morning, I would ask you some questions. All the treasures, accomplishments, riches, homes, little kingdoms on foundations of sand, all of it combined cannot hold a candle to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ and him crucified. So the questions I would ask is, beloved, simply this, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you really Really, from the depth of your soul, believe that. Some of you are nodding your heads, but hang on a second. Hang on a second. What if you're asked to give your life for the testimony of Christ? Would you do it? Would you die for Christ? Some of you are nodding your heads again. Hang on a second. Hold on. Maybe sometimes we can say yes to that question because in our lifetime, it's very unlikely that we might be asked to do that. But what if you're asked to give up your job, your livelihood? What if you're asked to give up a promotion? What if you're asked to give up a cherished preference to see greater kingdom advancement? What if it causes trouble in your marriage? What if it causes trouble with your kids? What if it causes trouble with your parents? 
What if our building and all of our assets in Calvary Baptist Church were seized tomorrow? If we're so willing to say we would die for Christ, then beloved, I would ask, what are we doing now? If we're so willing to say we would die for Christ, what are we doing now? What are you up to? What's important to you now? What offends you now? What do you pursue now? What are you reaching for now? What are you desiring now? You say you would die for Christ, but are you living for him? It is highly unlikely that Christ would ask you to die at this point in history, but he is commanding you to live for him. Are you doing it? What does your life say? Do you love Christ with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, or are there other affections that are competing for your heart? Competing for the throne of your soul. I pray that this morning we would all be strengthened to say, yes, I will die for Christ. Not at some unknown point in future. I will die for Christ today. I will place myself down on the altar as a living sacrifice to him. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. May this visual gospel this morning once again, strengthen us to say, yes, I love Christ with all my heart, all my soul, all my strength, and all my mind. May he have all of me because he's given me all of him. Our Father, we thank you for these truths. We thank you for this time. And Father, this morning, as we reflect upon these words that have been said, Lord, I know my words have been inadequate. But I pray, Lord, that through my weakness this morning, you would show your strength. Father, that the spirit would move, that lives even now are being changed, false loves are being revealed, conviction is happening and Father, as we begin to partake in the feeding upon the gospel, the symbols of the flesh and blood of your son that was given for us, Father, may they strengthen us to love you more. And may we be willing to lose all, forsake all, to know the surpassing worth of Christ crucified.